You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. This is a big show for us for a number of reasons. It's our first show of 2020. Uh, it's our first show in our new office. We are now in Midtown across from Radio City Music Hall, and we have finally, as you've probably noticed, released infield outs above average. We're going to talk about that a lot. I'm going to bring in Tom Tango to help us talk about it. Uh, we're going to delve into that deeply, but first, the actual big news of the day. Jose Martinez finally got traded. Yeah, I thought that's what you were going to leave with in your intro. <laughs> for those who've been listening to this podcast for a long time, I think that we've been sort of talking about, joking about how Jose Martinez has been a good fit for the Rays, both practically and spiritually, for literally like two years now. So, at least when so, it when it finally happened, when, I, when they, yesterday that was a weird. The trade broke on Thursday evening, and it was like, okay, Matt, pro, top pitching prospect Matthew Libertori is going from the Rays to the Cardinals, and then like the rest of the details took like ninety minutes to, to break. But at that moment, it was instant, instantly like, okay. Jose Martinez is obviously going to the race in this trade. You know, it's funny because I perceived it a little differently. Like, I, it was such a delay, like you said, 90 minutes, two hours. So at first it was, uh, okay, this is going to be a three-team trade because that's what always makes these things confusing. And then people started going off the rails and saying, oh, Nolan Arenado is going to the Cardinals. Uh, that didn't end up happening. But we are really serious about how long we've expected Jose Martinez to be right as one Twitter user who goes by the name of Panic City tweeted to me, apparently uh, in December of 2018, I had tweeted out one of my classic joke URLs, is Jose Martinez yet.com? Uh, and the answer is yes. And it's not hard to see why. Uh, we have really enjoyed Jose Martinez since his breakout 2017, where he had a 379 on base and a 518 slugging and like a top five uh, expected weighted on base at the time and hilariously bad defense. Like, there was no room for him at first base because they had uh, Carpenter and then Paul Goldschmidt. And he hasn't even played the outfield that much, and he's been minus 20 outs above average. It's uh, it's not been good. So clearly he needs to be a first base DH. That could have been any American League team. But he just feels like the most raised player who has ever been a Ray, and I'm just so pleased it's actually happened. He and Yandy Diaz, in fact, now on the... <laughs> well, I want to talk about that for a second. So they had already previously signed... Um, you know, from from Japan, Yosh- Yoshimoto uh, Tsutsugo, right? Who, as best described positionally as hitter, you know, <laughs> he, he might play some first, he might play some third outfield, whatever, but um, he is going to be uh, the left-handed component of this because Martinez destroys lefty pitching. You know, he's been a little bit above average uh, against righty pitching, but in his career, uh, he's got a 570 slugging against lefty. So you've also got G-Man Choi in the mix, and you've also got uh, Nate Lowe in the mix, or Lau. I can never remember which one it is. Uh, and then, does that mean Yandy Diaz is going to be like the full-time third baseman? That, I mean, that's the way it looks right now. I mean, the thing about the Rays, the way they're set up, is before yesterday, they were a pretty lefty-heavy yes. lineup. And that's part of why there was this belief they were going to go get a right-handed bat. So, I mean, like, for as you kind of noted, for first base slash DH, they have Susugo and G-Man Choi. So now they have Jose Martinez in the mix. And they also brought in Randy Rosarino. We'll, we'll get to him in a second. Um, but last year, Martinez, you alluded to this, versus righties, he hit 254, 325, 360, um, a 327 expected weighted on base. And against lefties, 
329, 397, 600 with a 407 expected weighted on base. Now you have a player who's going to be with the Cardinals. Jose Martinez was not in position to succeed. He was forced to play outfield. And he was forced to face righties a lot. Now he's going to be in a team where he's never going to have to play the outfield. Maybe literally never. Literally <laughs> never. And he will almost exclusively face left-handed pitching. You could argue whether or not like they pay too high a price to get that kind of player. Um, but he's suddenly going to look a lot better in the aggregate when you take when basically his two biggest weaknesses are basically taken rem- completely removed um, from the equation. And you know the Rays are going to be a team that's going to be um, very, especially with the extra roster spot, very aggressive with platooning. Um, so I think it's like he, he fits perfectly on that roster. Now, as for Rosarena, he's pretty interesting. I mean, he was a, a kind of a big prospect when he signed out of Cuba like three years ago. Um, he crushed in AAA last year. Granted, everyone crushed in sure. AAA last year. but he's, like He's fast, too. It's like 95th percentile sprint speed. Exactly. He had, I, I uh, found one play where he had, uh, on a grounder, ground out, he had a 30.8 feet per second sprint speed, which is like Billy, Billy Hamilton. Yeah. His stolen base numbers in the minors are, t- are, are are bad. He was like nine for 16 last year, yeah. but he's fast, which suggests he probably could be a good defender. He hit, you know, last year in AAA, he hit 358, 435, 593. There was a lot of talk initially. It was like, oh, this return seemed light for the Rays. And I kind of see it, you know, Libertori is a top 50 prospect as rated by MLB Pipeline, but they also swapped draft picks with yeah, 28 spots and also the associated uh, bonus pool that comes with it. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I, not right. to sound like a Rays apologist, but I've also always been a Jose Martinez fan. And now that he's in position to succeed, like I see this as, as, um, Oh, I think it's a win-win. Yeah, I, think I, I like it for both. Like I maybe like it a little more for the Cardinals. Um, but it's a win-win because Martinez for as much as I love him was actually only okay last year. It was like, yeah. a, it was like an average bet. I agree. He was not put in the best position to succeed. One thing that um, I want to talk a little bit about what the Cardinals are going to do next in a second, but I want to uh, note something that um, that Joe Sheehan noted on Twitter was that this is like the second time in six months that the Rays have traded a top 50 prospect for like a win now, like not really high ceiling return. They, I mean, Oh, they, wait a minute. I disagree with him on this. <laughs> are we talking about Jesus Sanchez? For, for Nick, Nick Anderson. The, come on. You get the point. It's a reliever, like sort of a journey. Like, what is he like 28 years old? Like, uh, 29. Why? He is a dominant reliever in the moment, but still, yeah. like normally, it was a, traditionally it is a high price to pay for a yes. twenty-nine year old reliever having the first great year of his career. I agree. Point being is, that I think it's it's interesting to see teams make these moves. They're kind of counterintuitive to what you would expect from the way "quote unquote" small market teams usually usually behave. As for the Cardinals, everyone now just assumes they're going to go out and. Um, sign Ozuna, bring him back. Although I think as I saw someone point out on Twitter, it'd make a lot more sense for them to go out and sign Nicholas Castellanos and let Ozuna sign elsewhere to recoup some of the draft pick I, that yeah. they, they would get. Castellanos also, is I, probably also a better hitter anyway. Yeah, and probably a better fielder going forward. Yeah, well, that's the thing about the Cardinals is they, they somehow had too many outfielders and also no outfielders, right? Like, I love Bader in the field, but he didn't hit at all last year. Um, Fowler... You know, Fowler is what he is at this point, which is like a below average veteran. Uh, Lane Thomas, like, is fine. You know, Tyler O'Neill has huge power, but can't make contact. Dylan Carlson, um, you know, he's interesting, but he hasn't really even played much at, at AAA so far. Uh, this was not a good offense last year, and I, I would absolutely have done the trade if I were them, like dealing from a position of depth for sure. But they have somehow not improved that offense whatsoever. And without Azuna, it's actually slightly worse. <laughs> like, no, I think, I do I something. think they're almost certainly at this point going to sign one of those two guys, I would think. I mean, the, the benefit they have with Azuna is that they're the one team that won't have to 
give up a draft pick to sign him. So they're very they're uniquely positioned to get him. Um, the sense I get is that they are super high on Dylan Carl- Carlson or sort of banking on him coming up and being an impact player at some point this year. That's always a no pressure, kid. <laughs> but that's kind of the sense I get. But yeah, the the Cardinals um, <clears throat> they need to do something because, as you noted, the the outfield situation is it's pretty thin. Uh, do you think they're going to get Nolan Arenado? I, I don't think they are, but I think that's what people want to happen. Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think that the the only Arenado trade I could see that that for me the the only trade that's really ever made sense for Arenado to me is the Braves. I just think there's like so many pieces in place that kind of fit um, in terms of the Braves having a deep farm system, having a need, I think- having long term. Uh, you know, payroll flexibility. So th- that was the one to me that always felt like the the obvious fit if it was ever going to happen. I think I think Bryant is a better fit with the Braves, and Arenado is a better fit with the Dodgers. Also, I have no idea what the Rockies are even doing. There's, so, no, there's no way the Rockies would trade I, in, the, in the division. I completely whether or not there's a good strategy. I or not, agree with you completely. There's yeah. no way. I'm not even arguing otherwise. Outs above average. Nolan Arenado. This is a perfect segue <laughs> to talk about outs above average. I'll see the floor to you to kind of give a little overview of what, yeah. what was unveiled this we, week. Yeah, uh, we put out outs above average for outfielders. This will be the third season of that, and then ever since then, people have been wondering when will it come for infielders, and it lagged behind uh, for a couple of reasons, but mostly because it's just really difficult. You know, there's more guys in a smaller space, uh, and it's just not quite as straightforward as did you catch the ball or not. You know, because there's throws and everything. So. Finally, uh, this week, we've been working on this forever, and it's been put out on BaseballSavant.com. This is all the good hard work of Tom Tango and Jason Bernard and Darren Woolman and everybody. And like I said, we'll have Tom on uh, a little bit later to kind of break it down a little further. But I think it's pretty cool, uh, not only because of like the top line numbers, which are you know similar to DRS and UZR, but some of the things that you can do with them. So first, uh, a very, very high level explanation of the way it works is it starts off the same way as outfield outs above average does, which is basically... How much time do you have to get to the ball and uh, how far away are you? Um, But this one is also a little different because it includes distance from the base when you catch the ball. If you're throwing the ball to first base, there's a big difference if you're 80 feet away or 100 feet away. And crucially, um, and problematically in one way, the runner's sprint speed, right? Like you're going to act differently if Billy Hamilton is running as opposed to Brian McCann is running. I say problematically not because it's a good idea, but just because sometimes it makes the eye test kind of tough because like a play that doesn't look that hard but buxton is running it's actually incredibly hard so i think that's going to be uh, something we'll have to overcome so if you were to go to the site right now you'll see the leaderboard and uh the very first thing i always do when we pump out a new leaderboard is look at it and say does this make any sense whatsoever <laughs> if we were to say that i don't know pete alonzo was the best fielder in baseball i would have known we had done something wrong um the top five or six or seven is super duper satisfying to me the range Right now is something like plus 20 to minus 20. Uh, Javier Baez is number one. Uh, Nolan Arenado, number two. Simmons is third. Ahmed, four. And then Story and Chapman are five and six. That is a great top six. And I can tell you what I learned is um, people will like a metric when it makes their favorite players look good. Cubs fans love this. Uh, Yankee fans aren't so sold on it because Gregorius and Urshela don't look that great. But one of the coolest things, like that's a top line number, you're used to it, is it's not just about what position you're playing. It's where you're standing on the field. What are positions anyway? Um, as you'll see in the article I wrote, I encourage you to go take a look. My, my favorite thing in the world on this is, let's say Nolan Arenado, plus 17. That is second best in baseball. He played every single inning last year as a third baseman. That's all he ever does is play third base. As a quote-unquote third baseman. Right, listed with a five on his back in the lineup card. 
Uh, but they shift. Teams shift. And so he spent some portion of his time standing at shortstop with Trevor Story over on the right side of the infield or wherever. In just those plays where he's in that slice of shortstops, Nolan Arenado was plus three. <laughs> and I, I embedded in the, the, the article um, a cool video of him robbing Corey Seager, where if you didn't know any different, you'd say, oh, yeah, that guy's a good shortstop. Right. I think that's important in this world of shifting because there are like hundreds of thousands of pitches every year where players aren't really in their traditional position. And what's cool is you can go on the site uh, and you can slice and dice that in any way you want. Um, like, a, like another good example there is Glaber uh, Torres. He was a negative at both shortstop and second base last year. But when I looked into it, all, not all, but a lot of his negative plays uh, while being listed as a shortstop actually came on the right side of the infield. He played a really bad second base while being a shortstop which is such a weird sentence to say, but it's true. Uh, where shortstops play, he was a zero, which is to say average. And that's important because he'll probably be playing a lot of shortstop this year. You do wonder, and this is like we're kind of getting into d- deeper in the weeds here, like how much the psychological element plays into it when a player, even like in a you know, play where Torres is, is um, he's positioned in the exact same place. But as a second baseman, there's like, if he's like, let's say he's playing right behind second base as a second baseman, there's no one directly to his left. The first baseman's close to first base, but then when he's a shortstop there, there's actually like a, a, the, the person designated as the second baseman who's a few feet to his left and like how that affects a player and which direction they think they're going to have to sort of like cheat to potentially. Um, you know, I wonder how much that, that ends up, that ends up uh, being, being a factor. Yeah. I've always kind of had this theory that, you know, third baseman and shortstops, uh, they don't all like playing on the right side of the infield equally. You know, and that all gets measured the same, like a third baseman has traditionally been a third baseman wherever he's played. Um, so I actually just pull this up right now. Uh, the the shortstops, for example, who are the best on the right side of the infield, uh, Elvis Andrus is plus four playing like behind uh, second base or in any of the second base spots. On the other end, uh, Brandon Crawford and Didi Gregorius were both minus four. Now, I'm not sure that says anything about playing on the right side of the infield because neither of them were actually rated very well in the first place. Uh, but they also, they, you know, there are some big gaps there. And when I looked at the overall list, like I said, the top of the list, super duper satisfying. Uh, the bottom of the list, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., but not unexpected. You know, he's probably a future DH. Fernando Tatis Jr., the flashiest and maybe most exciting player in baseball, minus 13, tied for second worst. And I can tell you, uh, when I showed this list to, uh, to actually to Matt's boss, that was the first thing he said. He's like, are you sure about this? We're going to say Fernando Tatis Jr. is this low on the list. Um, and he wasn't wrong because that's shocking. And when I looked into it, um, I found a couple of things that just to explain like what happened here, uh, you know, also to do the due diligence on the numbers. He had the 27th most innings played just among shortstops and the most throwing errors in all of baseball. <laughs> so, so that tells me something. I actually, you know, we can do better than errors, right? So what I did was, uh, you know, every play gets this estimated success rate, kind of like in the outfield. And I tried to find a list of all of the uh, misplays, plays not made on opportunities with an estimated success rate of 50% or higher. You know, plays that are made more often than not. And I looked uh, to see where Tatis would rank on that. So Tatis had 39 of those misplays. I played about 730 innings. So that's one every 19 innings, basically one every other game. Uh, at the extreme other end, <laughs> Andrelton Simmons had 11 in 873 innings. So that's one every 79 innings. So he does it about seven times less often. It's unfair to compare him to Simmons, who might be a Hall of Famer based on his glove. Um, but what I, when I looked into it, what I thought was cool about that is, so Tatis rated terribly, and that makes sense once you look into it, and Guerrero rated terribly, but I don't think for the same reasons. I don't think Guerrero can actually play at third base. 
Um, I think Tatis was a 20-year-old rookie who just made a lot of uh, overexcited plays, and if he just holds on to the ball a little bit more, it's probably going to be fine. Yeah, the 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 Vlad thing, looking at his number, I mean, Vlad isn't just like the worst third baseman by this metric. He is by far the worst third baseman by this metric. He was of the 35 uh, qualified third baseman in 2019. Vlad was 35th at minus 16, and no one else was even close. The next worst were uh, Carl Moran and Michael Franco at minus 7. So that's a huge, huge gap. Um, he was the, My favorite thing about um, – these leaderboards, as you can see, like it's broken down by directions. You can see where players excel and where they do not. And um, Vlad was minus ten on balls in front of him. So um, you, he's also below average going to his left and to his right. But the minus ten is really what jumps out jumps out to you when you look at when you look at the leaderboard. And there's you know there's been a lot of talk about. Uh, moving him and it's possible he might hit enough to justify staying there. I mean, I can only imagine what this number would have looked like for Miguel Cabrera in the mid two thousands, but Miguel Cabrera, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's the comp for Vlad, right? That's, that's the player you like when he came up, that was kind of the player, the profile of what he was projected to be. Right. Um, so if he can hit like Vlad, if he can hit like Miggy, they might let him stay at their base for a few years, but I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure either. Um, I like seeing the guys who made, uh, so we have this back to 2017 on the site. So it's fun to see guys who made improvements or to see guys who maybe have different ratings than some of the other uh, advanced defensive metrics. So, for example, Raphael Devers, uh, if you were to just look at like errors, it was about the same and, and poor, right? 24 errors in 2018 and 22 errors in 2019. Well, he went from a minus seven to a plus seven uh, by our metrics, which is, I think, a big step forward. And that aligns, I think, with the eye test. He definitely seemed improved and he talked a lot about working hard. Um, a couple of the guys... That, you know, I was pleased to see rated a little better than DRS um, or UZR. Uh, the number one on that list for me was Xander Bogarts. I've never quite understood why DRS crushed him. He was minus 20. Uh, we have him as minus three, which sounds about right. He's like average-ish to me. Uh, I know, I should say, uh, that is the DRS that is currently on Fangraphs. I know they have an updated version that will be coming. It's on FieldingBible.com. I looked at the Fangraphs one. Just wild, wild speculation alert, but I do wonder if maybe there's some noise with him and Devers, if they're both kind of showing up as like extremes and outliers, if because those other those other metrics that are that are doing based on positioning and trying, there might be some, some, some well, weirdness. Well, maybe. As far as I know, UZR throws out shifted plays entirely. So that's like half of every Dodgers play right there, you know, and, and DRS is improving. Um, it's not so much about right or wrong. It's obviously like a totally different methodology, but I'm I'm generally like pleased with the outcomes here. Um, something else you can do that you had never really been able to do before is you can break these down uh, by month. And admittedly, that gets into some sample issues sometimes. But um, a great example here is Ahmed Rosario, who you may remember uh, played really poorly last year. And it wasn't just the eye test. The Mets specifically said, what, in like May? Uh, hey, we're going to try him out in center field. Maybe this isn't working out. Yeah. And uh, it got better. I, I think Tim Britton or someone wrote a great article how he was working with Gary DiSarcina, their coach, on his first step and everything. And just the eye test said that, you know, it seemed like he played well or at least better the rest of the year. And that actually holds out to be true. We had him as a minus six in April, which is a lot to be a minus in one month. But if you watch those games, that that smelled right. And then about average the rest of the way. So that that was cool that that kind of aligned. And that's something you can do. There's also team leaderboards. Uh, Cardinals number one at plus 42. And now that I think about it, if they do trade for Nolan Arenado, uh, that might be the best defensive infield in history. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you think? Yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll want to run through a few things that kind of jumped um, jumped out uh, 
jumped out at me. Um, you mentioned the team leaderboard, and this is kind of a good segue. The team at the bottom, we already talked about um, Fernando Tatis Jr., the Padres were last at minus 23. Tatis Jr. is well below average. Also, Manny Machado was minus five. A little surprised and, by that. And Eric Hosmer, um, minus six. Which I wasn't was, surprised by that. Which was second to last of all um, for, of all qualified first basemen. There were 40 qualified first basemen by this metric. Hosmer 39th, Pete Alonso 40th. What stood out to me is that when you look at Hosmer directionally, is that, and I talked to uh, Tom Dango, the architect of this, who we we're going to hear from um, in a bit. As it turns out, and this is interesting, and I never really thought about it, is that like when it comes to fielding rounders, infielders kind of have a platoon split as well. Like just like lefty, the left-handed hitters are more comfortable hitting right-handed batters. Most uh, fielders right better going to their glove side, which when you think about it, actually makes sense because it's like they don't have to reach across their body and make an awkward backhand. Um, Hosmer, however, is below average going to his glove side, which is pretty rare. For the most part, it sort of is the opposite for these players where they're better they're going to their glove side and we are going to their opposite side. And for a first baseman, where basically almost every ball you have to, if you're left-handed, if you're left yeah. lefty, almost every ball you have to field is to your glove side, that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that aligns with the other metrics, which I've never really viewed him uh, that well. On that note, one thing that is not included in this, there's going to be iterations of this going forward. One thing that is not currently included um, is the ability of first baseman to be good or poor at scooping throws. People seem to think those are hugely important. I've always kind of thought they're probably not. Like We will get them included. I'd be surprised if it actually makes a big difference uh, one way or the other. Um, among second baseman, one thing that really jumped out to me is Ozzy Alves, who's sort of like this like extreme, where he's really he's well above average going to his left and well below average going to his right. And um, so it's sort of like, uh, it's almost like he's the platoon, like the equivalent of a platoon uh, second baseman. He's he's plus eight going to his left and minus 10 going Wait, to his right. His overall rating dropped enormously, right? I think he was like plus 16 or so uh, in the first year or, or in 2018. He was minus two this year. Yeah. And um, I, I remember looking into that. And I, just, I don't have those numbers handy right this second, but we looked into it and we tried to figure out like, you know, what is going on there. And um, I wish I had these numbers in front of me, but I don't. And it basically came out that he had just gotten to like 45 fewer balls that were assigned to him than he did the year before, <laughs> which I don't know how that happens in a year, um, but it did. The other thing I wanted to point out, which I think is um, interesting. So this is all coming obviously from the StackCast data and all 30 teams have access to this raw data feed uh, and they all use it probably in 30 different ways. I have no visibility whatsoever into what any one or another team does. But if they're all using this from the same starting point, I wonder if this helps explain a little bit about um, the Reds because, you know, they've made a lot of moves, but they let Jose Iglesias go, signed with Baltimore, and they don't really have uh, a, a shortstop that people seem satisfied with. They have Freddie Galvis, and Freddie Galvis has always looked like a good shortstop, but last year he was a, a slight minus on both DRS and UZR. Well, in this, he's a plus 12. He's one of the, like, 15 or so best defenders in baseball. I've always thought Freddie Galvis was a really good defender, and I wonder if the Reds... Um, are viewing him a little differently because they're kind of going off of these numbers and, and making that decision. Um, certainly, certainly could be would make would would, would make sense. Um, speaking of shortstops, um, we we touched on him at the at the top. Uh, Javier Baez, uh, he's good. He rates his, he's <laughs> really rates good. his best above average in all in all directions, which you don't you don't really see. The, the name that jumped out to me at the bottom as the worst among shortstop was uh, Jorge Polanco. Um, was the the worst of, of the thirty five qualified shortstop, and you, you could sort of see that. In, even like there's some disagreement amongst 
DRS and UZR on him because last year, if you go on baseball reference, he was worth like six war. Yeah. If you go on fan graphs, he was worth four war. Yeah. So um, he's a, he's definitely one of those players where there's a bit of a disagreement about the, uh, I, the quality of his defense. I think Didi Gregorius as well. We we have him as minus 13, and you know, he didn't hit well either, right? He had Tommy John surgery. He missed half the season. He came back. He didn't really perform on either side of the ball. So it's not necessarily that hitting and fielding are connected in that way, but he missed so much time. It's not hard to see like a guy who's trying to get himself back in gear. <laughs> yeah, no question. And then uh, as far as third base, we already talked about Vlad a little bit. And then the name that, you know, the thing that jumped out about me at me about Nolan Arenado um, is that he was plus 12 going to his left, to his left side, which was like the high, the best score of any player going in any one of the four directions, which just speaks to um, how good Arenado is. And coupled with Trevor Story, who also ranks in the top five overall and outs above average, the Rockies left side of the infield is as better that that tandem is about as good as a tandem as you're going to find. Which is funny because the left side of the infield there is fantastic, and the right side of the infield is uh, not maybe, as good as not as, fantastic. not as good as the left side of the field. So you can you can go onto baseballsavant.com and pretty much everything we've said uh, referenced on this show so far you can you can access yourself. You, know, you can slice and dice where guys are standing and and by month and all this kind of stuff. And certainly encourage you to do so and let us know what you find. Uh, we're pretty excited about it. So now I'm going to kick Matt out and we're going to bring in Tom Tango and he's going to explain this in a lot more detailed way than I could. So hang on a second for that. All right. I've told Matt to get lost and now I have Tom Tango here, our senior senior data architect uh, at OMB.com. Tom, I know you have put a great deal of work into this over the last couple of years. Um, I guess let's let's start with the nuts and bolts. You know, I, I outlined the pro- the like what goes into it briefly based on you know how far do you have to go, how much time do you have to get there, uh, that kind of stuff. But you want to explain it a little bit further, like you know the the iterative process that goes into making a metric like this work. Sure. Uh, the whole uh, goal here was try to make it as intuitive as possible. So as a fan, you see a play, you you can see it develop. You already know kind of if it's going to be a close play or not. So that's what we're trying to capture. So all we're trying to do there is we create some action points. So the fielder and the ball have to meet. So that's one action point, what we call the intercept point. The fielder then has to release the ball a few feet uh, later. So that's another action point. That's the release point. The, the first baseman or whoever it is that he's throwing to, he has to catch the ball. So that's another action point. And at each of these points, we basically freeze the play and we simply ask the question, how far did he have to go? How long did it take him to get there? Where's the runner? How far is he uh, from the base? How long is it going to take him to get there? So all we're doing is converting all these distances into their equivalent in time. And then once we have that, then we know, well, it's going to take him this amount of time to make the play. It's going to take the runner this amount of time to get there. And we simply make a simple comparison. Who's going to beat the play? So at the end of the play, uh, we put on a, a number, like an estimated probability of getting it out. But really at each of those frozen action points, we could do that. You know, it's like at this point, he's caught the ball and it's 80%. And at this point, now by the time he lets go of it, the runner's gotten this point, it's 60% or whatever the case might be. Right. That's going to be the very exciting thing. I always go back to that Ian Kinsler play in, uh, in uh, the World Series where he hurried a play. And at the start of the play... Uh, there was already a good chance that the the runner, the batter, is going to be out. Puig. Uh, Puig, yeah, this is game the three or whatever, the World Series in 2018. You're right. About. And they could have gotten out of the game. and uh, But he hurried the throw, and then suddenly it's an offline throw, and Puig is safe. So we could freeze it at every point and say, okay, 
it went from a 99% out probability to a 0% out probability simply based on everything that developed. And we could pinpoint like all these action events to say what caused it. What do you think? Well, I guess let me answer that question first. The, big, the biggest weakness in this system is that it only works on tracked plays, right? Obviously, uh, we do not have 100% tracking, sadly, but uh, the ones that are missed are you know, pop-ups or pounded into the ground for the most part, and there's not really any bias between parks or anything. Um, but hopefully, with fingers crossed, some improvements, that'll change soon. But besides that, uh, what do you wish you'd been able to get into like this V1 that we didn't quite get in there? Uh well, it's it's very interesting because you think that you're you're doing everything, and then once you start looking at plays as to why is this play like a ninety percent when it should be a ten percent or vice versa, and you watch the video, then you realize, oh right. So a good one is the the pitcher not covering first base. So we I had like a, a few plays where the first baseman had ninety eight percent chance of making the the out, but the runner was safe. And then when we look at it, it's because the pitcher didn't cover. And then obviously it's not fair to the first baseman for that. So uh, the philosophy of whoever touches the ball first gets uh, credit or debit for it now has to get modified in iteration two so that we're going to have now another metric that says, did the first, the pitcher cover first or not? And then we can then shift responsibility to, to him. So that's one of them. Uh, I would say turning double plays is probably another one, right? Right, right now, let's say it's a 6-4-3. Um, it's crediting the shortstop for getting the ball to second because he's the one who fielded the ball, but it's not really crediting the second baseman for completing that part, right? Right, exactly. So that's a part two as well. So that's like an additional layer. So I wasn't so concerned. I was obviously aware that that would happen. Uh, it's just every additional layer just means, uh, you know, an additional model beyond the, the original one. So I wanted to just focus on the first one first. I have found uh, anecdotally, I don't really have data to back this up, but I'd be interested to know if you have found the same thing. Uh, this feels a little different than outfield um, because it's not so much about the great plays you make as it is about not screwing up the easy uh, and medium ones. But I kind of alluded to this earlier with Matt, like comparing Tatis to Simmons. I think anybody would agree that Tatis looks cooler, right? Like no doubt. Uh, but Simmons almost never makes a mistake. And I think that makes him great more than making these impossible catches. Right, I agree. Uh, the one thing I was trying to do is create the star system the way we did it for the outfield. And then when I tried to do it on the infield, it, it just wasn't clicking. And then when I started looking at it, uh, I see that basically half of the value of the infielder is on uh, 90% plus plays. So plays that they should get 90% of the time, they're getting half their values on it. And that's because for an infielder, ground balls and uh, plays like that uh, are very easy, like you said, to mess up. And so if you can just get the routines and be perfect on those, you can get like, uh, you know, a big edge. And uh, so that's when it kind of hit me that it is different from the outfield where outfield is mostly about pure speed. Uh, the infielder, there's a few uh, facets about it. Can you speak a little bit to like the actual uh, coding process? I think some of our listeners have a lot more code experience than I do, right? So you, you go into this, you have this general idea in your head of what you think is going to be important. Um, how does that turn into you writing however many lines of SQL? Right. So it's it's very interesting. So the, the first thing is you really need to have a, a framework in mind as to how you want to proceed. So I knew that the, the action events, the action points was the way I wanted to go. So I had to make sure to have the plays all broken down the way I needed it. Uh, so we have a, a decent amount of support staff here. So rather than uh, I do everything by myself, uh, I like the way the retro sheet uh, 
process works where they have a lot of people working on it to really prepare the data for you to be easily consumed. So uh, we have uh, uh, really a talented program on our staff, Brandon, uh, where I would give them like all these requirements, uh, pretty in-depth and very specific. And he's got to do all the hard work and making sure that he's able to capture all the different, uh, you know, peculiarities that I, I've got listed. So once he has all that down, then he, he can give it to me. And it's similar to a retro sheet style where all the data that I asked for is exactly the way I want it. And then from that point, uh, then it's just a matter of uh, finding similar plays, trying to create a, a, a model out of it. And then, and also, like I said, everything's intuitive. I tried to keep everything in terms of distance and time. So that makes everything once you start coding pretty easy uh, because it follows a natural pattern. The more distance you cover, the harder the play is going to be uh, up until a certain point because sometimes you also have the batter running to to uh, first. You don't want a play that takes too long to get there uh, because then the batter will have beaten you. So we've seen plays like that as well. Oh, that, that reminds me of something I wanted to talk about. So. Uh, we obviously have included the speed of the runner in this, which we didn't do in the outfield because who cares if you're catching a fly ball. Um, but you are certainly going to react differently if Billy Hamilton is running than if Albert Pujols is running. But we we didn't do the exact time on that play. We we did the average of the guy's uh, sprint speed. And, and you can explain it probably better than I can, but it's basically the idea being that when the fielder like sees the ball coming, he has this idea in his head of how fast he has to go and even if Billy Hamilton dogs it and doesn't run hard, he's still probably going to react as though it's like capital letter Billy Hamilton, right? Right. And in addition to that, uh, imagine that, uh, let's say, Hamilton looks and sees that Simmons is there and he got it really quickly and he decides not to go for it. So if you look at the data, it's going to look like Simmons beat the throw uh, ahead of Hamilton, but let's say like five or seven feet. But that only happened because... Uh, the batter reacted to seeing it with Simmons. So now it's going to make it look as if Simmons didn't have a tough play. But really it's Simmons having the ball in his hand is what caused it to be an easier out. So that's what we have to take the guy's actual speed. So when the next Billy Hamilton gets called up from the minors, and we don't know anything about him, there's no data, uh, we, don't, we don't know what his average is until he qualifies, which if he plays every day, it happens pretty quickly. Uh, there's kind of a league average placeholder for that guy. And then it gets rerun at some point. Right. So we use the league average, which is 27 feet per second. And uh, whenever he finally qualifies, which isn't that many runs, it's uh, five to 10 runs, uh, we rerun. But we rerun every single day. So even for a guy like Mike Trout, we'll rerun every day. And then this way, it's always the the most, his seasonal sprint speed that's going to get used. Well, well, I mean, I guess I know the answer to this, but for our listeners, when you say seasonal sprint speed, um, if it's opening day, are, are we using the last few years of tracking or just last year? Or, you know, how do you envision that? Right. So right now it's based on the whole StatCast set of data. Uh, but going forward, it's going to be the last, the way I'm, I'm coding it is last nine months. So what that allows us to do is at opening day, we get to cover, uh, you know, the most of 2019. And then it'll roll off once we get to around the All-Star game. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because at first we didn't have that many years, you know, so it's like guys weren't going to change their speed that much, but now we're like five years in and, right. you know, you're starting to see some guys slow down a little bit. Yeah, that, that was the thing is that at the beginning, we just so excited to get the data and we had really no reason to just look at, you know, one particular year. 
So this is 2017. We look at the data that we have. But then as years go on, it's like, okay, at some point we need to switch this so that we can't take back to 2015. So that's why we'll be doing this uh, you know, roll-off period. So the numbers we have now, um, it's kind of like a version one, right? There'll be small changes for the small. I don't expect any massive number changes, but okay. be a little bit here and there. What would you say? What This is a silly way to ask this question. What version of version one is this? You know what I mean? Like how, how close is what people can see now to like the first time you pulled this together however many months ago? Uh, I think, I think this is like, it's pretty close in terms of the final results that you see. It's just like all the nuances that, you know, I want to bring in to capture like some of these oddball plays. Cause every now and then it's, you know, this play doesn't, uh, jive with everything else. And it's like, okay, we can see why now we got a code for it. But so I would just see like this thing as what we did as the main release, and then everything else is just uh, additions to it, like a 1.0 to a 1.1 to 1.2. Nothing nothing that's going to be massive. I think most people are, are going to see, like the, the average fan, quote unquote, will see like the takeaway number, you know, plus 19, minus five, what have you. Um, but the most interesting thing to me, and I know it is to you, is the, the fielder roles, right? Where you can stand, you know, where uh, a second baseman is, even if you're not a second baseman. Um, and you've kind of divided those into slices, right. right? So can you explain a little bit about the slices? It's like a certain number of degrees, basically. Right. So uh, the way we do it is we basically tr gave each of the, the typical fielding locations that we're familiar with three slices. And those came about, like going back to like the question about like, how do I code this? Uh, think about it uh, with left-handed and right-handed hitters. Uh, once I started slicing up the, the data, it, it became apparent that you wanted three slices for each position so that with the right-handed hitter, uh, the fielder would be mostly in two of the slices. With a left-handed hitter, he would be in uh, two slices, and there would be one slice that would overlap. So that's why the three slices ends up working uh, as well as it does. And uh, so once we have all that, then it makes everything a lot easier so that no longer do we have to worry about it's weird to say, but the his official position in the batting lineup for that day. So obviously what the manager puts on the batting lineup that day is really irrelevant to the play that we're looking at. So we're looking at a if Javi Baez plays in short right field, he's a short right fielder. He's not a shortstop. And so we don't really care what the manager puts on the lineup card. We just care about where is he actually standing. So we are in, in kind of a unique uh, position here, I think, because we've got all this cool data, and obviously the, the whole like uh, advanced stats community is very interested in this. But we're also trying to serve like the common fan, and so I'm curious how different, if any, uh, you've worked for teams, you've consulted for teams. Would you have done this if your if your only audience was like the general manager, you know, or the head of the stats department? Uh, in that case, uh, I would do it a little bit uh, differently, uh, just in terms of the allocation of the plays. Uh, the way that we have it done now is that we, we tag every play to one fielder. We'll say that uh, this fielder is responsible. If it's an out or an error, it's easy to say who the fielder is responsible. But for, let's say, on a base hit and in the hole, is it the shortstop or third base? Here, uh, for, uh, for Savant, we allocate one fielder because it's a lot easier to query and code and to present and say that this guy has 372 opportunities rather than 372.73. But for a club, I would have done it uh, differently and start allocating partial responsibility. And so for a ball hit in the hole, I would say it's like 60% the responsibility of the shortstop, 40% the third baseman. But 
it's really not that much of a benefit because once you realize why you start allocating like that, it's mostly on plays that aren't going to get caught anyway. And so there's really not much of a benefit to deciding, well, who should get the minus 0.1 on a 10% out probability. It's such a small number that it doesn't really give you much uh, insight into giving one guy 0.06 and the other guy 0.04. That complexity just doesn't translate well for a Savant user. When I, uh, when we put this out the other day, one of the biggest questions I saw that people had were, um, I think these are questions that have been asked since like the beginning of time. If you're uh, an infielder and the guy next to you is very good or very poor, like, does that affect you? Have have you noticed any effect in this? Yeah. So it's very interesting. Uh, That always comes up and it's been coming up for 15, 20 years, ever since I've been, you know, working really uh, hard on this. Uh, In the top five or top six fielders, there's Arenado and Story. So it's kind of hard to say that there's some issue in terms of like overlap of zones when uh, Aaron Adams' story come out as well as they do. Uh, that said, uh, I have looked at it, and when you look at it league-wide, you don't really see any kind of bias. You don't see that it particularly helps or hurts the third base or shortstop for those you know, plays in the hole. Uh, I looked at Story and Arenado specifically, and it did look like there was a little bit uh, being hurt on Story, but not necessarily enough to say that it is an effect. Uh, we'd really have to look at it team by team just to see. But overall, I wouldn't ex- it's, it's not really an issue. Simply going back to my point that on base hits, uh, base hits are low probability plays to begin with. So uh, it's going to be tough to say that it hurts one guy more than the other. Going back to the beginning real quick, the first time you wrote all the code and you press execute, uh, how excited were you when you saw that the names at the top were like Baez and Arenado and, and not, you know, guys who are poorly regarded? Because <laughs> yeah. I, I know I was pretty excited. <laughs> yeah. So the first time I did it, let's say like half of the half of the names were what I wanted. And then uh, the other half is like, where, where did they go? And they're a little bit lower. So there was a lot of like, uh, like trial and error. Like the first time I did it, I just wanted something out. And I didn't split it between left-handed and right-handed hitters. Uh, I reasoned the idea being that it shouldn't matter because it's just about distance and time. But actually, it does matter. So there is an effect. There is a bias based on whether it's a left-handed hitter or a right-handed hitter. Hitting a ball to the the exact same ball to the same spot, uh, simply the way the ball slices or uh, or hooks. So so I had to split that up. And and that, that really helped a lot. And so as I you know, kept going uh, iteration by iteration, there's like new things that would pop up and, uh, you know, I had to handle those. Okay, Tom, thank you. Uh, we're, we're pretty excited about this. Uh, everybody listening can find all this at BaseballSavant.com. Uh, you can always and do always tweet at us with questions. I'll be happy to answer and uh, kind of excited to see, you know, where this goes next. It's just sort of alluded to. We've got some good ideas, both in the code and uh, what Darren's been building on BaseballSavant.com. Uh, That's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks for listening.